Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we're continuing this morning our series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, the passage for today is printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. We also have the children's version on page 11. You're, of course, welcome to turn there on your own smartphones. Or if you have your own Bible, maybe you're not quite familiar with it, turn your Bible to about halfway. For most Bibles, that's usually the book of Psalms. And you'll go to the next book is Proverbs, and the next one is Ecclesiastes, and you'll be right there. And then we're going to read all of verses 1 through 15, but if you'll notice with the kids' version, we're only going to really emphasize verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> but as you're turning there, preach the gospel. Die, be forgotten. It's a poster hanging right over my desk where I prepare sermons week in and week out. And I love the irony of the fact that the person who put that quote together actually quote actually gives attribution to the person who made that quote. I'm not going to because they didn't want you to know that they said it, hence the be forgotten part. And I had that up there because I don't want that. Deep down, I want to be remembered. I want to be significant. I want to matter. But deeper down, I really want to want that. And so I have it up there as a reminder to preach the gospel, to die, and to be forgotten. See, that deep thirst to matter that we all have is a key theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's specifically in our text today. But before we get there, let's see where we have been these last three chapters. So Ecclesiastes kind of hangs on the question of chapter 1, verse 3. What do we gain from all of our toil here under the sun? Slogging it out in a world that doesn't work, that's broken. Where everything we do seems to end up, that good King James word, vanity. Captures exactly what the Hebrew meant, but unfortunately, English is a living language and changes, and what you think of with the word vanity is not what the Hebrew means anymore. Think more along the lines of kind of meaningless, empty, of no worth, or my favorite, frustrating. Chapter 1 observed that our striving to matter, our trying to find significance is frustrated by death. Chapter 2 told us that even if we have the ability, like Solomon, who probably wrote the book, even if we have the ability to live the Hollywood lifestyle, unlimited resources and no accountability, we can do whatever we want to indulge our desires. Even if we do that, it doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't make you happy. It leads you to emptiness, frustration. Chapter 2 also went on to teach us that we really won't matter at all because even if we do something great, even if we achieve a legacy so we won't be forgotten, death will destroy it. We won't have a remembrance. And it's frustrating. But then he ended chapter 2 on hope, recognizing that contentment is a gift from God and that God wants us to have joy in the average mundane stuff of life under the sun. But fighting against that routine joy is our deep heart quest to matter to be remembered, to find significance, to build something so people will know I was here. You know you want to matter. You want to be remembered. You don't want to be forgotten. And to an ancient Near Eastern person, the original audience of this book, being forgotten was horrifying. 
And so longing to leave some sort of legacy is still the overarching context as we come to chapter 3. So if you would, turn to page 10 in your own Bibles and follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep up and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. You know, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your word. We ask that you would once again, Lord, send your spirit to open this text up to us, that we might know your truth. Would you also, Lord, open ourselves up? Would you examine us? Give us the ability to be candid and honest with ourselves about who we are and how we live. We pray, Lord, that you would show us once again the beauty of Jesus and the ugliness of life under the sun. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So just real quick on verses 1 through 8, you might, of a certain generation, recognize the bird's song, turn, turn, turn. Thought about asking the worship team to sing a couple lines of it, but then I thought better of it. Verses 1 through 8 is a collection of what literary people called merisms. It's where you put polar opposites up to explain everything in between. Like if we're searching for something, we say, man, I looked high and low. We mean we looked everywhere. That's what these little opposites here in verses 1 through 8 really mean. This poem here is a pause in his experiments and his explanations, kind of an interlude as he kind of just deals with his thoughts about his experiment to try to find happiness and try satisfaction. He reflects on just the verities of life. And it's interesting to note here, if you look at one through eight, that that could have been written by a pagan philosopher of the time, or even today. You can see these words hanging up at a gym somewhere. It's the context of verses 9 through 15 that make them meaningful. That's why we're going to concentrate on verses 9 through 15, where we see that it is God who quenches the deep thirsts of our heart. 
which gets us to our theme for today, which is this. We strive for the beauty around us, but only God gives us what we long for. So it starts out these first couple verses with striving with beauty. Verse 9 basically restates the same question from chapter 1, verse 3, but now it's in the context of all these various times from verses 1 through 8. Times that are full of things such as kill, weep, mourn, hate, war. This poem, these first eight verses, is a catalog of paradise lost, of life under the sun. And so he asks in that context, under the sun, in such a world, what does the toiler gain from all his toiling in all these seasons of life? What really is the point? He reminds us in verse 10 that he has seen it all. You remember back in chapter 2, he he said he's going to really examine with wisdom what life is all about. He's going to look at these various paths for creating a legacy, for finding significance. And from that perspective of looking for significance and all these various things of life, he gives us his answer in verse 11. Would you look at verse 11 with me? He says, he being God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So beautiful in its time, life is not chaos. There's design and there's purpose. As verses 1 through 8 observes, there's things happening out there that seem to be designed for something. There's times. Beautiful is not, as we typically use it, attractive. This is more along the lines of think, fulfilling, truth-giving even satisfying. Even with the frustrations under the sun, Solomon says God has made everything beautiful. There is some satisfaction here, but, and here's the problem, eternity is in humanity's heart. You ever heard the adage, champagne tastes on a beer budget? What Solomon points out here is we have eternal tastes on a lifespan budget that eternity is in our heart, that Eden is coursing through our veins. We instinctively yearn for life without end, and yet we die under our time-bound sun. And that tension irks us. It drives us crazy because death is not natural. Now, I know that sounds like preacherly hyperbole, but if the Bible is true, it is clear that we were not meant to die. We spent more time on this on the first and second sermon in this series, if you want to go back and listen to that. But for now, let me me tell you, the Bible makes it clear we were not meant to die. We were created for unending life. And so truly, death drives us crazy. It's not meant to be. And that's the second part of verse 11, which we could alternately translate as, we cannot figure out what God is doing. So putting all this together, verse 9 through 11, tell us that toiling for a legacy under the sun, trying to find significance here, this thirst to be remembered we all have, it leads us to despair because of our looming death, which drives us crazy since we were never meant to die. And our crazy comes out in how we live. Instead of living as creatures under the sun, drinking up the daily joy and contentment God offers that he promises at the end of chapter 2, we try to be God's equals, and we try to manufacture joy from our toil under the sun. With Eden coursing through our veins, with death driving us crazy, we don't know what God is doing, and so we don't trust him to make everything beautiful. 
we have to make it beautiful ourselves. We don't want to let God be God, and instead we seek meaning and significance from the beauty around us instead of seeing that he makes us significant in it. We don't trust him to bring it all together and make it beautiful. That great American poet, Garth Brooks, (laughs) captured this really well. His song, you know this song, Unanswered Prayers? It's a great song, and he, he, he has a situation where he goes back to his high school reunion. Okay, for those of you under 35, see, what you used to have to do before social media is you had to burn vacation days, and you had to travel to go to this overpriced hotel conference room with all the people you're from your high school class, and you did it at year 10 and year 20 or maybe 25 sometimes, and in IRL, you would find out all the social media stuff that you find out every day, okay? That's what a class reunion is. So anyway, he's at his high school class reunion, and he sees his high school sweetheart, And he remembers all the feelings and he remembers how much he prayed that he would marry her. And then he looks at his actual wife and he says, sometimes you thank God for unanswered prayers. (laughs) That's what Solomon is getting at here, that we try to manufacture our own beauty. This has got to be the way it is, God. This has got to be the way it is. I can't trust you to make everything beautiful in its time. Death here is driving me crazy. I've got to fix this. Let's make this happen. We're going through difficulties. We're going through trials, wondering what God is doing. And we've been there, right? Why aren't you answering this? Which often means, why aren't you answering this the way I want you to answer this? Do you even care? But then looking back, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes decades, sometimes never, looking back, you can say, okay, that was hard. I do not want to do that again but I'm glad of the fruit that came from that. I see now that God was making everything beautiful in its time. See, verses one through 11 give us a picture of God seeing it all. Every scar, every tear, every little step, every little sadness, every joy, every trial, every triumph, and making it all beautiful somehow. And so Solomon asks here, will we walk in that beauty Or will we walk in our crazy? Will we try to grasp onto the beauty around us and squeeze meaning and joy out of it? Or will we let the beauty around us cause us to long for its source? Let let the Eden coursing through our veins drive us to want the Eden that will come one day, someday, when God makes all things new by his grace. And he points the answer out to us, starting in verse 12, where we see God's joyful legacy. Look at me at verses 12 through 13. It says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, since God is working his beautiful plan... The plan that we long for, but we can't fully know, verse 11 tells us. We don't know what God is doing. What are we to do? Sit back and enjoy the ride, is what he tells us to do. Enjoy life, he says, in all of those times from verses 1 through 8. Whether it's light or heavy, whether life is energizing or exhausting, see it all as God's gift to you. And you'll have joy, is what Solomon says. You know, my family went through, as your family has, has seasons of difficulty, we went through a season of difficulty 2014 to 2016-ish, 
And during that time, I don't know why, I probably heard somebody say it, but I started changing the way I spoke and changing the way I prayed. I stopped saying thank you in my speech to others and in my prayers. And instead, I started saying I'm grateful. I would just say, someone did something, I'd say, I'm grateful for that. Oh, you did that. I'm grateful. Or in my prayers, I'd say, Lord, I'm grateful. And maybe just for me, I don't know why, but that, that, that rewiring of just that little verbiage started giving me more joy in my trial because I started recognizing, here's a reality I'm grateful for. Here's a little sliver of beauty I'm grateful for. Because God wants to bring us joy, and that helped me have joy during that trial. That's what Solomon says here, that God wants us to have joy. And then he says, in addition, in verse 12, what else is there? Have joy, and it says, do good. See, it's not just about our emotional state. God wants to pr- us to produce or bring about the good, it says. God has this beautiful plan for the world under the sun, and in a way that we don't understand, we don't know what God is doing, verse 11, verse 12 tells us in some way his people are his hands and his feet in bringing about that goodness. We are to do good in the joy that we have. See, and we can only really do good for others when we are secure ourselves not thinking so much about our significance, not thinking so much about being remembered, which is why the instruction to do good comes after the instruction to have joy. It's only once we are rooted in the significance and grace that God gives us that we have the joy that then empowers us to really do good in our community, to live out the reality of verse 13, which says, if you'll allow me to translate it into a crass vernacular, sit back, have a beer, have a burger, and enjoy yourself. That phrase there, take pleasure, is literally experience pleasure. And everywhere your brain is going right now at the phrase experience pleasure is what it means. And we Christians need to hear that, don't we? Because we, we're kind of reluctant to have pleasure, aren't we? It somehow feels wrong. It's probably because, you know, most of us don't know this, but it's true. Most of us are influenced more by Victorian England and Greek Stoicism than we realize, especially in the church. Very often, it's those things more than God's Word that determines our emotional state. We're supposed to be suspicious of emotions or keep a stiff upper lip and everything, keep it easy. Don't, don't, don't get too carried away in your emotions. Don't be too happy. See, in the baseline level, why we're susceptible to that is because instead of the gospel, we believe that our behavior brings God's favor. And so we're scared to be happy because we're sinners. We're scared to be joyful because God's holy and we're not. And we don't believe our guilt is really gone, that our sins are as far as removed as the east is from the west, that God looks upon us through the righteousness of Jesus. We don't really believe that. And so what do we do in the church? Yes, God has saved me by grace. He's put me on the team because of Jesus. Hallelujah, I get to wear the Christian jersey. But, you know it's true. I'm constantly on the bench because I'm not really good at this Christianity thing. God looks at me like a coach and goes, be better. If I could just get out there and practice more, I would be better. And God would like me more than he let me be off the bench. And you know we think that way. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. 
Let verses 12 through 13 sink in your heart. God wants to give you joy. God wants you to experience pleasure, even in the midst of toil under the sun. You believe that? Do our children believe that about God? What do you say, boys and girls? Do you? You think God wants you to be happy, have joy, have pleasure? Let's look at your verse 12 and 13 together on page 11 there, about the middle. Here's what it says. The best thing for us really is to have joy and to do good things our whole life. As we have daily trouble, God's gift is to make our life nicer. So eat the cake and drink the Coke in joy. Boys and girls, I'm going to see your eyes, boys and girls. There we go. There we go. Okay, boys and girls, do you have any pets at home? You have pets? Yeah, I have pets too. Can you tell when your pets are happy? If you have cats, no. But if you have dogs, right? Yes. Yeah. Right? They wag that tail. They, they flop their ears. They, they, they do weird things on the floor because they're just so happy to see you. And does it make you happy, boys and girls, to see your pets happy? Doesn't it just make you smile? Right? You can be having a bad day. Your dog just look, walks up to you and just looks at you and just wags his tail. And you're like, what do you want? And you, you can't help but smile. Think about that, about how your relationship to your pet, and just imagine how your creator, God, looks at you. And when he sees you happy, it makes him happy. God wants to give you joy every day, is what this verse is telling us, in the normal, usual stuff of life. And for all of us, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But when life is hard and makes us sad, it's not so simple to believe, is it? See, but verse verse 14 gives us the secret. Look at verse 14. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is not so that we will be afraid. Fearing God is the idea of revering God, of respecting God, of thinking that God is, he's so full of awe that God is awesome which is a word that we use far too much, isn't it? You know, I discovered a couple years ago, big surprise, you look at my body shape, uh, this new flavor of Bluebell ice cream. Um, and whew, let me tell you, okay, so hey, follow me here, ready? Okay, so we're going to do a Pavlov experience right here. Um, brown sugar ice cream base, okay, which I'm, I, I'm done, okay, that's great. Dark chocolate chunks, roasted walnuts, I know, it gets better. And then, and then crumbled up pie crust, all mixed together, right? And it's like, let me tell you something right now. Your love handles are going to say yes to this, okay? And if there's ever been an ice cream that should be called awesome, I mean, this is it, right? And if I use the word awesome for ice cream, what do I have left? For the triune God who is so awful that my response to him should be your awesome. The God who is so powerful, verse 14 tells us, he's timeless in his power. And in that power, he's the source of our joy. Let's look at the boys and girls translation on page, page 11. Verse 14, here's how we did it for the boys and girls. God makes things that last forever. He doesn't need our help. 
A God like that deserves our worship. Here's what's going on. So remember the big context, the significance by building a legacy, being remembered. We can't do it because death destroys everything, but not so God, verse 14 tells us. What he builds lasts forever. We worry about what the next generation will do with it. What we built, will we still be remembered when they mess it up? But verse 14 tells us, well, God doesn't worry about that because nobody can alter what he builds. God has displayed his timeless power to create what cannot be altered. And he's done it, verse 14 says, so that we will think he's awesome, which is the key to our joy. As verse 15 tells us here, in verse 15, we get everything you wanted. I want to zoom in on that last little phrase there, verse 15. Look with me there. It says, God seeks what has been driven away. Literally, it's God secures what has been pursued. It's an image from shepherding where the sheep runs away, the shepherd pursues it, grabs it, and secures it. He has secured what has been pursued. See, from verses Chapter 1, verse 3, until now, Ecclesiastes has been about finding significance under the sun. But there being something out there that we could find, we could get to make us matter in our toil. This concern for a legacy has been pursued for three chapters and not found. It's escaped Solomon. It escapes us. And with that context, think again, what is verse 15 saying? saying that God goes and gets for us what we have been pursuing. That last little phrase of verse 15 is an image of God chasing down and giving to us what we have given our lives chasing after. What we have pursued, God goes and secures. Make me feel important. Remember me. Help me know I mattered. To use the language of Ecclesiastes, give me a lasting remembrance. And God says, I will do that for you. Oh, it's so rich. I don't want you to miss this. So let's look at the kids' version of verse 15 here. Here's what it says. It says, since we are all locked, or since we are locked in all that time stuff from verses one through eight, God goes and gets for us the meaningful life we want so badly. See, we're starving for joy, thirsting for significance under the sun, and in spite of our toil to those ends, we're thwarted. But God himself gives us joy in the daily routines of our life. As a gift, he chases down the significance we're dying for. That's all right here in Ecclesiastes. You don't have to go to the New Testament, but when you do, you see things such as Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, where it calls the gospel God's eternal purpose realized in Jesus Christ. What's the legacy God is building that no one can stop? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 11, God gave us eternal life, and this is in his Son. What is he building? He's building the community of saints united to his Son. See, what we realize is that what God offers us in the gospel is that we can be God's legacy in Jesus. That his eternal, unalterable purpose is to make for himself a restored people filled with so much joy. That's what's available to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. You're meant to be part of that. 
to be restored to the Eden that has been lost. And so with eternity coursing through your veins, this world under the sun whets your appetite for the world you really belong to. And we feel it all the time. Have you ever had a moment of such profound joy or delight or satisfaction or such happiness you just couldn't take it all in? Yeah, we all have. We even have language to try to express that. You've heard grandparents or parents look at a baby or a toddler and they say, I could just eat him up. And we know they're not expressing it literally, like, are you a cannibal? No, we know what they're trying to say, right? What are they trying to say? It's one of those moments, I feel like I'm missing a sense because there's so much coming at me, I don't have the ability to process it. There's so much more here. We can't take it in. C.S. Lewis captured this idea in his famous speech called The Weight of Glory. He captured it in academic terms, and most of you have already heard that quote, so I'm not going to do that Instead, he also articulated it in one of his novels called Till We Have Faces. So I invite you to turn with me to the front inside cover, since we don't have slides. And we'll look at that first quote there, where he says this. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country the place where I ought to have been born. See, that's the longing of eternity coursing through your veins. You're created in the image of God and you will not be satisfied outside of our relationship with him. In spite of all the toil that you give in this world trying to find joy, it's not going to satisfy you because all the joy you have here is meant to make you long for the ultimate joy that will come one day, someday. See, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, the promise is you will find that joy. You will tap into that significance. He will place his well done over your life and you will find joy. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that even now. And if you are a Christian and you're like me struggling with the whole, yeah, I'm on the team, but I'm on the bench because I'm not any good at this Christianity thing and God looks at me like a disappointed coach, get that out of your mind. There are two kinds of people, biblically speaking. There are those in Christ and there are those not in Christ. And so when you are in Christ, what is true of him is true of you. And so when God thunders from the heavens for all to hear, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, he means you if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. He doesn't look at you and do that sigh of disappointment. He looks at you and has so much joy because he loves to see you happy and joyful. Believe the gospel and have joy. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before texts like this that are enigmatic and thick. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your spirit that we might understand the beauty of grace that you are showing us here. And Lord, we pray, especially for those of us who know you, Father, would you forgive us for doubting your character, for thinking you still angry, and for being afraid to have joy. Would you help us to believe, Father, from the depths of our soul that you have joy to see us joyful. And Father, we pray for those here who don't know you. We pray, Lord, that you would show them the beauty of your joy that they would long to have that.
And we pray, Lord, you, you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, that he would draw all people to himself. Even now, Lord, would you draw people to yourself that by your spirit they might have new life in Christ and repent and believe. I pray that you would do this, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.